Hello, I'm Steph and this is the Don't Buy Her Flowers podcast. I hope you're well. Nothing major to report here other than we are now fully back in the swing of weekends, stood at the sideline and I have to say I'm not hating it, which is surprising, I'm surprising myself. Um, but ask me when it's freezing cold. But last weekend, Mabel played in a rugby tournament and my throat actually hurt afterwards from yelling so much. There's something about watching her play and wishing I'd done team sports as a kid and also watching her clash into other kids, boys and girls, and take them down. I think it's just that it wasn't an option when I was a kid, so it makes me really excited for her and the possibility of her childhood not being about sitting watching boys do all the fun stuff while in the 90s we were just supposed to worry about looking thin. Something for another episode, perhaps. Um, so far on this season, we've talked about Overwhelm with Bridget Shorty, and this is one of those episodes that keeps coming up in conversation ever since we recorded it, because I'll be talking to someone and they'll be saying how they're struggling to keep up with the juggle and work and overwhelm, or they'll talk about how guilty they feel about not having enough time for their kids or not giving their kids enough. Um, and then I will very passionately repeat back some of the wisdom of Bridget and let them know it's not their fault and we've been made to feel this way by society and on and on genuinely they look a bit relieved so do have a listen if you haven't we also talked with new mum um comedian kelly convey who is brilliant and thoughtful about experiences new mum she's got two small children and then we also have some episodes coming up on sex and relationships which generally has been your favorites um our listeners favorites and also midlife and getting older with some really excellent guests so if you subscribe to the podcast you'll get the notification when a new episode goes live we're 49 episodes in and we wanted to re-release this next episode because it's so insightful it's the glorious helen russell journalist and author and expert on happiness who had researched and written about happiness for eight years and then wrote her book how to be sad we talk about how people desperately try to avoid sadness. We push down sad feelings, even if they're justified and someone's going through a really awful time. And we try to help our kids skip over it. But what Helen says is that actually that does more damage and we need to work out how to be sad better. Right, let's get straight into it. Here is Helen Russell. Hello. So what I was going to start with is you spent eight years researching happiness. Yeah. And you have discovered a startling fact, which is that most of us are terrified about being sad. So this is where this whole book has come about. So how to be sad, everything I've learned about getting happier by being sad better, kick me off. So basically, back when we could travel the world, I would um, travel a lot talking about my books and my work and wherever I was in the world, um, largely actually in the US and the UK, I, I would give talks or I'd um, do interviews and someone would come up afterwards and say, um, you know, how can I be happy? And often they were people who perhaps had just lost a loved one or mm. people who'd been made homeless or made redundant. And there was still this expectation, well, why, why aren't I happy? And I would, I would almost feel like saying, well, you know, sometimes it's normal to be sad. Sadness mm. is the, the normal sane response when we experience losses or disappointment. But I feel as though in much of the world, this, this idea of the pursuit of happiness has become so all-encompassing that people just don't want to be sad. We hear all the time how happier people are healthier. Well, those statistics are a little bit wrong, or maybe we'll get to that later. But, mm. but actually, this idea that we must be happy all the time, I felt like maybe I had not, um, I had done people a disservice in previous books by, by, by talking about happiness as though it meant never being sad, because that mm. isn't what happiness means. Sadness is going to happen. So we have to figure out a way of, of doing it right. 
And the book is part memoir, part manifesto. So what I, I think what makes it really readable, obviously, it's your story. So you talk about sadnesses that you've had, including grief and infertility and anorexia and like difficult things which really bring it to life. So compared to if it were just a straight academic book. But what is really interesting is that you're basically pointing out that everyone kind of wants to avoid sadness. And one of the really strong quote in there from Julia Samuels, who's a psychotherapist, I think, says, it's not the pain of loss that damages individuals, but the things they do to avoid the pain. So grief is obviously a massive one for lots of people, like you say, if they're going, well, can I not be happier? Um, But you essentially, quite early on in the book, you kind of establish that we have to feel all the feels. Yeah. Yeah, because actually, yeah, she's absolutely right. The the things that we do to try and avoid it. So the fear of facing our sadness can feel overwhelming, but the cost of not doing so is far greater. Um, There's lots of studies to show that if we attempt to suppress that sadness or suppress our emotions, it will backfire spectacularly. I think of it as like a, a beach ball almost that you're pushing you try and push it underwater in a swimming pool, it'll pop up somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yeah, personally, I had had my my sister died when I was little of um, sudden infant death syndrome. It was like mm-hmm. my first memory. We all have stuff. I think that's what I wanted to get across is that I, I'm not special. We all have stuff. My, my dad left. I don't have a relationship with him. As he said, like infertility, anorexia, everybody will experience this loss and heartache at various times. And if we don't know... Um, if we don't culturally talk about it, then you just feel so alone. It's so isolating. So yeah, I, I guess I wanted to look at the unhelpful coping mechanisms that many of us cling on to when things feel really hard and and also just accept that stuff happens to all of us. So we can't just ignore it. When you when you write about your sister, you sort of it's the very bad thing. It's the thing that no one ever really talked about. No one. And it, it is heartbreaking to like the thought of you with your pigtails sitting on the stairs waiting for your dad and not really knowing what's happened, only that your family had changed dramatically overnight. And you can picture that. And obviously, when you're reading, you think, of course, that would have had an impact. Of course it did. But yet we like you say, we kind of hide those feelings or we expect people to kind of have you know have a funeral and then we move on and it's that really British thing which is so strange yeah and it's this idea of what you don't talk about can't hurt you which I think many especially maybe our generation's parents grew up with for Mm. example and and we know now that the opposite is true that not talking about something just means especially for a child that then you make it up and what a child will make up will often be perhaps even worse than what has Mm. happened Um, And that was my experience as well. You know, nobody told me that really explicitly that my sister had died or that my dad had left and he wasn't coming back or what was going on. And Mm. so you're just kind of making up these these crazy scenarios. We all have vivid imaginations and it's just much more helpful having spoken to lots of experts now and really tried to get my head around it with the benefit of having a supposedly grown up mind Mm. of of how actually even with little children, you should talk quite clearly about loss and death and, and sadness from from as soon as they are able to. Mm, I think because I obviously having been reading it again recently and I think that thing with children about the fact that you kind of go, oh, it's fine. I would like if they cry, oh, you don't need to cry. Everything's fine. And you kind of gloss over it. And if we're doing that when they're kids, then they don't learn how to be sad. Or it's this association with sad is bad. So don't, don't let's skip over that. You're fine. But it was interesting because um, the other night, my 11 year old it was like Sunday night and and I think he what he was feeling was like an anxiety but he was worried and he said I'm worried and he looked sad and I my initial reaction 
immediately was to go, you haven't got anything to worry about. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. You're fine. You're fine. And instead I sat with him. I felt like an excellent parent. So thank you for the book. (laughs) I like, I sat with him and he's getting quite big. You know, he's not long and he's going to be the same size. So I put my arm around him and I was just like, okay, let's go through all the things that you might be worried about. And we went, you know, we listed all the things that to him, his world are massive. So whether that was whether he'd done his homework right, whether he played okay in the match that, you know, his rugby or... And we went through everything and I could feel his shoulders come down. Mm. I know. And I was like, well, first of all, thank you, Helen. But I thought, God, (laughs) because we that's what we do. You kind of skip over it because what you want is for everyone to just be happy all the time. But then in having that conversation and then it led me to kind of say, you do know if you're worried or sad about anything, you can always talk to me or dad like that. And he was like, yeah. And the next morning we talked about it again. And it was like. God, I think that's possibly changed the way I parent. That's so, amazing. Yeah, but you're, but you're, so it makes complete sense because we probably grew up in an age where that wasn't the case, right? And it's on reflex. You still see it in playgrounds everywhere. Someone falls over and they'll, you know, say, get up, you're okay. Or like, don't cry. And it's with the best of intentions, but it just mm. doesn't help. Even things like um, a child saying, I'm really scared of the dark. And then a parent says, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Well, mm. actually to that child that there is, and there can be a great deal of shame attached if you feel like your feelings are wrong. If, mm. if your emotional response is, is you're told that it's wrong, despite however much a parent might love you and be trying to do the right thing as we all are, it's it can be really unhelpful. So yeah, you're right. It does come, come almost automatically and it's trying to catch that and, and turn it around. And, and the same with Corona. I think we've been having a big thing right now about the idea that probably everyone will get it at some stage at school. And when that happens, it's there's no stigma and we've got a plan and this is what's going to happen and mm. and it doesn't have to be something where shame is attached or, or anything like that mm. and you you write about perfectionism and you call it like a silent killer and I was watching one of your TED talks where you list all the issues that might come out of perfectionism so I wonder if you could just explain that because it's it's big. It's a bigger issue than people might probably think. <laughs> yeah, it's huge, isn't it? And I think you and I probably grew up at the time when it was almost the acceptable flaw to state in a job interview or oh. on your CV. You know, it's oh, she's a bit of a perfectionist. Yeah. But it's there's nothing. But it's no badge of honor. Yeah. So perfectionist tendencies have been linked to. Let me see if I can remember the list. Um, <laughs> so it's I 2019. It's, it's so. <laughs> OCD, PTSD, chronic fatigue syndrome, insomnia, indigestion. Uh, anorexia bulimia depression anxiety and even like early death so you know it's really not a good thing actually quite a lot and pre-pandemic um one of the lead researchers on this was saying this is going to be the next epidemic is perfectionism and you know the rise of social media and and comparison it's a real problem of of people feeling like i am not enough unless i am perfect and it's Mm. yeah it's a real problem for, for those of us even who are who are adult, let alone, I mean, people growing up in this climate, it's mm. a real challenge. And you write about having anorexia in your 20s. And again, it's another, this is the book kind of takes you on this roller coaster because it's another bit of the book where you go, oh God, like it's, it's so sad because having, and it's again, I haven't really talked about it, but having had an eating disorder, not anorexia, but, and then lots of people close to me having anorexia, it's so isolating. And it is complete sadness. It's like this energy and focus that people put into it and you link it to perfectionism, but it's it's so tragic because you also know that it's such a waste. It's a waste of energy and time and all those things. Yeah, I think, so interestingly, there is, I think there is a genetic element, but then mm. it can also be societal. So I might've ended up a perfectionist without 
my personal family background I might not have um and you know we're all nurture nature we're all a mix of the two mm-hmm. so and I suppose no- it doesn't really help just to go oh well, this is because this happened when I but, was but, you know it's fascinating to I think it's um without wanting to kind of everyone did did their best raising the next generation but it's helpful mm-hmm. I think to look back and see okay so what do I want to do maybe slightly differently I think that's mm-hmm. that is helpful and, and valuable um but as you say yeah it's so all consuming it doesn't give you the headspace to be thinking or doing a lot of the things that would be more advantageous to you and that would bring you more joy and fulfillment and eating disorder so all-consuming mm. and and yeah it is it is just sad it's really sad and it's I think it's the it's the coming out of the office to go straight into the gym to go home to it, oh god and it's it it's really sad but I think it's something that people don't really understand and no one knows what to say and in the book actually there's a there's a couple of really good examples of what friends said to you who said the right thing and then the friend people who said the wrong thing like you're looking well which is like the worst yeah. thing you can say to someone because that basically you take that as oh I'm I've got fatter right yes yeah despite completely again very well meaning um that there were some some male friends who who when I was you kind of on the road to recovery would say oh great you've you've got your boobs back <laughs> well that's really not I mean yeah being sexualized in this way is not really what I'm going for right now yeah. um and then there were other people who said just the kindest things that like we we love you no matter whether you are thin or not we we love you regardless of your job just this idea of of that being enough and and the unconditional love is it's just obviously so important and it's something that perhaps when you are in a dark place you forget so it's just always lovely to be reminded or friends mm. saying like i'm thinking of you no need to reply just checking in mm. good. And, and what do you think of I suppose it's trying to deal with other people's reactions. So if you have opened up and you have said, I'm struggling and I'm sad, or, you know, I have an eating disorder or I think I'm feeling depressed or any of those things, what can people do if their reaction is one that really doesn't help? I think um, you have to perhaps look elsewhere for support. I think that I have come to realise that for some people I have to lower my expectations, which Mm. is kind of counterintuitive again and we're all told to you know, aim high all the whole time but a little like the perfectionism thing I, I can't expect perfectionism in myself and I can't expect it in others so if someone's reaction is not one that is necessarily helpful to me um and it's not and you know to, to clarify it's not because they say something I don't like but if I if someone is in a dark place and perhaps one friend isn't able to offer that support then you have to go elsewhere you can't expect to change that person whilst you're in a dark place you mm-hmm. you have to turn elsewhere for for that support and and that can be hard realizing that some perhaps people you care about or who are close to you aren't going to be the people who can support you in this but sometimes that will be the case and if you keep on banging on doors that don't open mm-hmm. you're just going to feel worse yeah it's difficult isn't it and if people just say stupid things that you've got to protect I suppose you have to protect yourself perhaps yeah um one of the worst things that someone said to you well this was about the perfectionism was the boy who dumped you by telling you you were gone 90 percent perfect what a dickhead (laughs) for someone who is desperately trying to be perfect it's like oh but you know with my adult brain now I can see well he's daft 
and mm. that's yeah. impossible but with my you know we know now that the the brain carries on developing till we are maybe 25 and I think I was around 24 at the time and so my brain at that time went oh right okay better try try harder next time it's just that trying hard all the time mm. yeah I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of good enough in everything who and, is it there uh, is yeah. um, one of your experts talks about good enough I'm trying to remember yeah quite was. a few do so um Dr Tal Ben-Shahar talks about he's written a great book on perfectionism um and talks about how yeah the road to anything is going to be more curvy than we might expect it's not linear we're not going to get somewhere mm. and then Winnicott um famous psychologists would talk about being a good enough parent and how mm. actually you can apply that to all of life if you're trying to if you're striving all the time and obsessed with being the best or following a certain parenting route, for example, you're not going to do your kids any favours. Actually, psychologically, the best kids are parents who are kind of just muddling through and are not being so rigid in either I don't know, Earth Mother or Gina Ford or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There has to be kind of some flexibility and to, to model failure as well. I think that's really helpful increasingly mm-hmm. to show that um, we all make mistakes. And if kids don't see their parents make a mistake, then they think they can't. And that's not helpful either. Which is funny because I don't think that was something maybe that our parents did worry about so much. That feels like more of a modern issue, right? Yeah, we worry about everything these days. We're trying to get it right. It's like, well, we have all this information, which we're constantly getting. So therefore, we should be able to do it better and we'll do it right. So although we might improve on certain things, we're probably, realistically, we'll be fucking up other things. yeah no I definitely think that we're just making different mistakes I mean certainly the kind of the 70s and 80s was the kind of frazzles for dinner parenting and I watched I mean I watched so much television I watched <laughs> I mean Josh Widdicombe's new book watching neighbors twice a day I definitely watch neighbors twice a day and probably home and away I mean I watched yes. so many Australian soaps my Australian <laughs> accent is still really on point but um and yeah we didn't we didn't have as much information about what might be helpful with child rearing, but maybe that was a good thing. Maybe people were more relaxed in some respects. Yeah. Well, uh, someone was talking the other day about how your parents didn't necessarily advise or you on what um, exams to take, like what options to choose and all that stuff. Whereas I think that will, we will probably try and do that and talk about what career possibilities and all that stuff. I mean, mine just kind of let me loose. Yes, but you had millions of siblings. I mean, there wasn't time for this. (laughs) But my mum didn't know, like people didn't go to university much in my family. Like I think my aunt did. Um, So there wasn't so much of that idea of how you do that, how you navigate that world. Mm. We were all pioneers in some respects. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we're all very involved with the school WhatsApps and the, oh dear God. Yeah, it's a minefield. And then they, and then, I'm kind of one of mine's off to secondary school and I'm like I won't know anything which I think I'm kind of looking forward to but also going oh my god like you'll learn long division again yeah yeah um and I was gonna ask you so you start by writing more about infertility and the huge sadness that you felt with that along with shame and embarrassment which again is horrible given that it was completely out of your control like it's it's awful that Pete that's how you're going to feel but you'd really describe that you you felt like a failure your body felt like it was failing yeah I think it's that time I wanted kids so badly from the age of about 26 I was sort of my body had this kind of really primal yearning and it was all I could think about again becoming all consuming Mm -hmm. and so I had years of fertility treatment I call them the stirrups years I spent so much of my time maybe three mornings a week <laughs> in, in hospital naked from the waist down with my legs in stirrups so there's the shame of 
um, of not being able to have children when mm. society tells me that's what I should be doing. There's the shame. I feel like my own body has let me down. It might be my fault because of because of the anorexia. Um, I feel as though everyone, I worked at Mary Claire at the time, so all of my colleagues were going off on maternity leave every week. I mean, there were so many baby gap booties going around. It was just mm. torture. And, and also we are socialized not to flash our genitals at strangers. And I was having to do this <laughs> like three times a week. So it, it made sense. I understand why that, that shame was there, but it was just, I mean, heavy. It was all consuming and, and heavy. And there's, there's so much interesting stuff around shame and how, how toxic it is and how it's different for men and women. And, and for women, it's often around these times of that we, have expectations of what women should be doing at certain times so trying to have a baby is is a prime example Mm. men are not having it that much easier there's a lot of shame around about vulnerability and expressing emotions at all so yeah it's a a really difficult one I think again we don't talk about very much Mm. and you you write as well about sort of post you see you you have a baby and then you have twins (laughs) via IVF yeah um which is a lot that I mean it's a lot it's, it's a, a lot. lot but you write about um your experience of feeling then really lost and sad and you end up going to the doctor um and I suppose I think of quite a lot of people who have struggled to have a baby that I know have almost found it even worse when they have a baby because they have this feeling that they're supposed to be really happy yes the guilt yeah, yeah. like that's yeah. Can you describe that a bit? Because I think, and, and also what can people do at that point? Yeah, it's really, it, it's, there are many kind of angles of attack coming on. So I think I also felt as though I had um, almost let down the mm. the team who couldn't have children because then I felt I had kind of defected to the other side mm. and that it, anything, talking about anything to do with having a baby now would somehow rub their noses in it. And yeah. I knew how painful that was. So yeah, there's this thing that you want for so long and then you get it and life isn't perfect because it never is. And you're not happy all the time because that's not how life works. And, you know, having a new baby, you're tired a lot of the time. Your body's been through a lot. I just wrote about um, post-traumatic stress disorder and childbirth, which is increasingly common. I now realize I I had with my first Mm. and I was on bed rest with the twins. So my body was a wreck. My mind was a wreck. You're tired. And it, it just felt impossible. It can be very lonely being a new mother anyway but again one of the great experts I spoke to Dr Tal Ben-Shahar has talked about this thing called arrival fallacy when you Mm -hmm. get the thing you wanted and it's somehow you're not cock-a-hoop all the time you're still going to experience sadness it can feel um, a little deflating and I was very curious I thought well how can motherhood one of the supposedly most in inverted commas natural things in the world how can that still count as as a as an arrival fallacy and he said again because of the media and because of the portrayals of it in every kind of Hollywood movie it's one quick cough and then the baby arrives and um you know it's everybody looks beautiful the whole time having a small baby in the house is usually quite relaxing and joyous with some lovely background music mm. and the reality is it's hard it is and so yeah I felt enormous guilt around that and I think what when I just couldn't sleep at all I started hallucinating colors which I don't recommend anyone does and I recommend getting help before that but then I went to the doctor and got a prescription for for antidepressants and and got offered therapy which was massively helpful and I think different people will need different things but speaking to Julia Samuel again she 
made the great point that it doesn't have to be with a therapist, but it's the talking to somebody who listens without interruption that is the key thing there. So again, it's it's finding that person who is your, your kind of support buddy, mm. somebody who is going to listen without judgment and making an agreement to have a regular check-in. And it won't perhaps be it won't, might, might not be your best friend. It might be that they can't tax help you on that one, but it will be somebody in your circle who can support you. Um, Is this what you call shit FM in the book? Shit FM, yes, yes. <laughs> Let me explain. So, um, <laughs> my friend Jill and I um, would just have this shorthand basically for when life had felt pretty bad for a few days you know and you just have those days it just feel, all just feels a bit awful and the voices in your head you know negative self-talk and everything feels a bit terrible and gray and we would message each other saying shit fm's been playing for a few days now and then we'd meet for coffee and then we'd talk and, and she'd talk and i would listen and then i'd talk and she would listen and we hadn't fixed each other afterwards we weren't um, suddenly not sad but we felt almost good sad because by talking about those feelings we had learned to understand them a bit more i guess so that's, that's been massively helpful for me. And then things like, I'm a big believer in the fresh air and getting out for a walk and, um, and doing all of the lifestyle things that we know are good for us. But yeah, I also needed some extra help. And I think it's really helpful to talk about these things so there isn't then stigma and shame about it. This idea of, well, you wanted a baby, you got a baby. What are you moaning about? Because it's, it's still hard and that has to be okay. And just, you mentioned depression. And I think in the book, you talk about obviously they're different things sadness and depression but you what you're saying about is if we can work out how to be sad potentially it avoids us from reaching that point which becomes depression yeah so like depression is a, a chronic mental mm-hmm. illness that needs help um and i've been there and got that t-shirt but sadness is is a temporary emotion we feel when we have experienced loss or disappointment and sadness can be awakening it can be a message to tell us what's wrong and what to do about it but we have to listen we have to be still enough to listen And um, although there are genetic factors as well and lifestyle factors, studies show that we are more likely to let normal sadness tip into something else if we don't um, make space for it, if we don't take care of it. And also I think there is a a problem if we pathologize normal sadness, if we make it sort of a medical problem, Mm. then there's more shame around it sometimes, there's more guilt around it. And it doesn't mean that we are able to handle it when it next comes along. So for example, I think grief is a really good one because not a really good one, obviously it's a really terrible one, but (laughs) grief will happen. We will all experience that. But in, to go a bit tech for a moment, the the DSM, the American Manual of, of everything to do with the mind, they took out the grief clause in, I think, 2013. So there used to be a clause that said you couldn't be diagnosed with depression um, within, I think, two months of experiencing a bereavement. And then this was done away with. And the people who did that said, well, grief and depression often go hand in hand. So it's important to catch it. Absolutely true. But being sad when we have lost someone is completely normal. It doesn't necessarily mean we are depressed. And I think the, the rise in, in diagnosis and, and prescribing around what might be normal sadness, I think could be helped with uh, maybe perhaps more talking, um, a different kind of cultural approach, a different cultural acceptance of normal sadness. I think that you're much more likely to think there is something in inverted commas wrong with you um, if you're feeling sad in a world that tells you to be happy. And so a lot of the experts I spoke to, Dr. Lucy Johnson is very good on this. She says, don't ask what's wrong with you, but ask what's happened to you. Because like mm. I say, we've all had stuff happen. Mm. So it's not necessarily that we are broken. We are going through tough times. So in a pandemic, for example, it's it's normal to feel sad and to feel blur. And 
it doesn't mean that our brains are somehow not working as they should. That's really useful, actually, what's happened to you, because and it could be something that's happened a long time ago yeah. that you've just never dealt with, or it could be something that's gone on now. But it's, it's that why, oh, God, I should be feeling really happy. It's like, well, no, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I think that um, that what have I got to complain about? Do you have any experts on that? I think you do in the book, because I think that's probably for a lot of people who I know who do have, you know, they've got enough money and they've potentially got a setup that they're happy, you know, that they could be happy with or they've got kids or they've got whatever all those things that should mean that you're you've done you've got you've achieved yeah and so then they bury the sadness and so they shouldn't talk about it so all your your points about you know doing something about it they're completely ignoring because they're too busy thinking I shouldn't be feeling like this I'm really lucky I've got it good what do we do with that yeah I would say that Every psychologist I've spoken to over the last kind of 10 years now has said, you know, pain is still pain, Mm. however privileged. There is no hierarchy of sadness. We all get to feel sad. Um, We we all get to feel all of our emotions. It's it's what we do with them that that counts. And I think there are enough miserable billionaires to see that it's not money that makes us happy. It used to be um, until recently, the old idea that money can't buy you happiness and, and it didn't matter how much you earned over a basic threshold to make you happy. And depressingly, that has changed slightly because of income inequality around the world and well-being inequality. It means that if if we are earning um, what might be termed maybe a comfortable amount, we are likely to be happier because we can afford all of these well-being measures like living somewhere that's nice, like exercising, eating food that will make us feel good. And we can all feel bad about that. And that is incredibly unfair and and awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, inequality, even if you're really wealthy, studies show if you live in a, in a neighborhood or live in you know, a city like London, for example, where other people are not really wealthy, you're going to be less happy because you're you are experiencing you may be in your own bubble but you cannot help but see how other people are less fortunate around you mm-hmm. so inequality is a really interesting one that doesn't matter obviously many people would prefer to be on the higher income side of the inequality but if you're living in an unequal place you're going to feel worse so somewhere like Scandinavia for example where everyone gets taxed eye-wateringly high taxes but it means most people are looked after means levels of trust are higher so you are going to feel happier whether you are a high or low earner Mm. so I think yeah money is no shield against unhappiness and discomfort Mm. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think it stops people from getting help potentially or, or talking about it. So that's the, the kind of biggest lesson there really. Um, because then you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And, and still not feeling ha- any happier. Um, I was just going to ask you about the kind of rush hour that we talk about on the podcast. So one of your experts, so it's Alex, is it Sujung Kim Pang? Yes. Yes. I like great. the sound of him. He's great. He so emailed he, this morning. Oh, did he? Yeah. Well, he talks about pe- parenthood. He's very reassuring because he's like, parenthood is really hard. Like this stage we're in with yes. small kids and trying to juggle it all is really hard. Can you tell us a bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, I can. He's, um, I feel bad because whenever I, because his kids are a bit older now, and whenever I end up speaking to him, 
I kind of have a bit of a moan and give him a hard time and say, oh, patriarchy, this is all right for you and all you, you men folk hiding in your sheds while your wives make breakfast and do the packed lunches. And he's like, no, my kids are bigger now. They can make their own lunch. <laughs> and I feel bad, but um, it's true. Um, he, he's been really honest about how he calls, he calls children like vampires, cute, lovable oh, yeah. vampires, but yeah. vampires nonetheless. Um, but he's, we've since spoken about this a little more and he's been really honest saying that until his kids were about 10, he says he achieved, I paraphrase, but very little of note because he, he just can't. It's so full on. And again, this is like, you know, social media and the way we read about others' achievements in whatever field we're in. I mean, sometimes I will compare myself to people whose field I'm not even in and think, oh, why haven't I had a number one single? Oh, because I'm not, you know, I'm not I can imagine you've got, is it White Snake? Is it I love you? White Snake. I love, I'm quite into the babies now, another kind of 70s, 80s glam rock. Um, right. Yes. So it, it's really problematic because you'd never know what's happening behind the scenes. So I think that it's really important to kind of talk about that and, and cut some slack and, something always has to give. I was talking to my neighbor who doesn't have kids yet. And she was saying, well, I don't want to sacrifice my nice life. I, like, I get it. I really get mm, it. Yeah. Th- th- there is always a sacrifice. It's, it's military planning. Your relationship may take a backseat. Your, your work might take a backseat. Nobody gets to have it all. And if they do, someone else in that family is not having it all. Mm. And I get myself getting quite worked up about it, but it, it's, it's but just it's, so it's, important to talk about. Yeah, and this is exactly the rush hour where you're yeah. you're trying to, and you're like you uh, have brought what looks like an amazing, you know, you've got books, you've got TED talks, you're a speaker, you're. But I haven't authority. showered today, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> Nor have I. Fine. <laughs> I did clean my teeth though. Now, oh, well done. I'm I think honored. that's winning. It's when yeah. you get to like five o'clock and go. Ooh, that's yeah, fuzzy. no, I haven't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like oh god. Yes. I think. Will you talk about? Um, social media and being sad it feels at the moment I think there's lots of books coming out and lots of people discussing it and I think it was John Ronson was on the Fortunately podcast with V and Jane and he was saying the, the next thing that he thinks is going to be a big sort of discussion point is our internet use and the fact that we got given this thing how many years ago and we we're all like oh amazing I can get on the, to everything all the time I can order everything it's instant and, all and then we haven't actually we didn't know what the fallout might be yeah but in terms of being sad and feeling sad, how does that all fit together? I think it's it's not helpful. I think um, there was a great Facebook study um, by Mike Viking from the um, Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. He asked normal Facebook users to come off Facebook for a week. And I think they were like 50% happier and less stressed after a week. I mean, yeah. there's so many studies showing how it impacts negatively on young people. There's been lots of studies because you are online, so you're comparing yourself, but also you're not doing the stuff that could make you happy, like being outside, like seeing friends. So it, it, I think well, it even is Even in terms of achieving, like you kind of might be on there and thinking, oh, I wish I'd written a book. I wish I'd had my yeah. hit single or whatever. But those things take time. And you've just lost three hours of the day scrolling <laughs> some shite on Instagram. Yes. Yeah. I spoke to a philosophy professor who I was terrified by. Um, he's an expert in Kierkegaard, who's notoriously difficult 19th century Dane. And um, he he basically said in the olden days you would compare yourself to perhaps your the 30 people in your cohort or in your in your village your community and you might be doing quite well compared to sue and bob down the road but now you're comparing yourself to maybe the top one percent around the world and actually you don't look so hot compared to like i don't know beyonce and mm-hmm. you know you're not doing as well as jk rowling there's there's always something and it's it's uh, we can know something logically 
but there's a part of our brain that will go straight to, well, I'm not doing that. I'm, mm. Why aren't I doing that? I think um, Kathy Rensenbrink, the, the writer, has a great tip that she won't go online until after, after 12 o'clock, after noon. So at least she has that headspace, that breathing space to think and to write and to, to I guess, have your own thoughts in the morning before mm. you start all that. So I try and do that. But I think it's, it's going on airplane mode as much as you can. In terms of yeah. sadness, it's really interesting as well. You a little bit felt it during lockdown at the beginning, but the quietness, you need some quietness to feel properly anything, and especially mm. sadness as, as a kind of more contemplative emotion. It's not like the kind of high octane extrovert one. So you need that quiet to hear the message that the sadness is trying to give you. And mm. if you are constantly scrolling or trying to fill your time or distract yourself, then you can miss that. And I've spent years, you know, doing that, just thinking, oh, well, just keep busy, keep busy along with the perfectionism that was part of how I was raised and, and you just keep going. But actually, if you don't stop and if you do fill all your moments, you're, you're going to miss that message when it comes. Yeah. So that you're always doing it. And that, and that links back to parenthood. Like they're always having to be busy and do stuff with the kids and you yeah. can't just rest, which yes. we need. Yes. And actually, Alex Sujong Kimpang talks about um, how rest doesn't necessarily just have to mean lying on a sofa or lying in your bed. It's it's active rest can count as well, but it's something where your brain can restore. And that's when you'll come up with good ideas. And I'm writing about creativity at the moment. And that's when we are at our most creative, like Paul McCartney came up with yesterday in a dream. Mm. People invented the sewing machine in a dream. The idea that when we, when we stop, that's when the good stuff happens, mm. but we have to allow ourselves to stop and a lot of our lives at the moment are designed so that we never stop, which feels really problematic. Do you think it will change? Do you think in 10 years time, we'll look back and go, God, that was a mental time when everyone was constantly on their smart, you know, like in the same way that you have advisory of how much booze you should have a week. Yeah, Could it keeps getting happen? lower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Did that happen with um, social media or screen time or? That's so interesting. Well, there's, I mean, there's so much around AI and how much, there's yeah. going to be more of it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and it might be in more things than we have currently. Mm. I think it's it's very hard to go to full Luddite and shut yourself off completely. Mm. It's it's really challenging. I think, um, yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting how the next generation navigate that. And so what are the things that people can do to help when they're sad? Like what's the top four or five things yes I think things to be good sad are helpful so um I think it's firstly is not fighting it because it's pushing down that beach ball it's going to pop up somewhere mm -hmm. and then it's talking about it if you can and if you're not ready to yet you can you can just say like could you just sit with me for a bit mm -hmm. you know a lot of especially men who I've spoken to said I'm not ready to talk about how I'm feeling but if I have a friend and we're just in the room together that's a start and that helps that helps that that thing going good if you can get a buddy system going where you have someone who you have an agreement with that when you talk they'll listen and when they talk you'll listen mm. that can be really helpful um i find the idea of getting some perspective massively helpful and lots of studies back that up so whether that's through um getting up really high on a mountain so you physically getting some perspective and seeing it's not that my problems don't count but actually humanity has been through a lot and we are we we do cope and we it's have all experienced it's bigger yeah. than me yeah and I yeah. think books can do that as well as these times when we can't travel books are a great exercise in empathy and mm. brain scan show when we read we mentally rehearse 
um, the activities, sights and sounds that are happening in that book. So we help feel, we feel less alone. We feel more connected to other people. And it's, again, it's a good way. It's not negating our experience, but it's making us feel that other people have been through this. So yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's going to be okay. And then I think exercise is massively helpful and it doesn't have to be loads. I think that's the thing really worth pointing out. Um, it can be a 20 minute walk a day. Studies have shown that that is linked to a 30% reduced risk of depression. So it can help with low moods, can help with um, managing normal sadness so that it feels bearable, but you're not pushing it away. You're maybe walking, even thinking about that sad thing, working out what it means, what you should do about it. Mm. Um, but you'll keep yourself on a kind of healthy plane. And then I think I think doing something for someone else is, is really helpful for all the people I spoke to, those who actually paid it forward or at their lowest thought, okay, is there someone else who's feeling sad as well? Or can I do something to help someone else volunteering or donating anything around the idea of warm glow giving? It's amazing. They can look at MRI scans now and see that our brains literally light up with the pleasure of doing good. So we should do it because it's the right thing to do. But the um, the feel good is is a nice added bonus. There. Well, and there was an increase in that at the when the pandemic was first, when the lockdowns were first announced, there was definitely loads more helping neighbours, going and doing their shopping and stuff like that. And it gave you a purpose at that point, I think. Um, yeah. And and so people would have had that feeling of oh this is this is nice and yes that yes kind of gratitude. And actually, loads of people I've spoken to since um, the the book came out and since the first lockdowns have said that although none of us are where we perhaps thought we'd be right now, there is this increased sense of community. Maybe it's community WhatsApp groups or whether maybe what might have been a message board in a village hall in the olden days is now perhaps a WhatsApp group and someone will say, oh, could anyone help paint my fence? And then someone Mm -hmm. from the neighborhood can come round. So there is some, there are some benefits to modern technology. And um, I hope that there is, there is more of this sense of we are all in this together. Mm. I think when it was when it first started, it was in China. There was this tendency to think it's very far away; it's not going to affect me. But of course, we're all affected. Mm. So this idea that we are interconnected, I think, is really helpful. Mm. And you talk about balance as well. That that so I, even when it comes to exercise, it's like exercise is good. It's not good if it becomes something that you have to do every day yes. and you're punishing yourself if you don't do it. And Yes, I used to do a lot of classes at gyms with the word pump in them <laughs> and I was eating all the healthy things, but I was not at my most healthy. So, yeah, it needs a balance. You can eat all the kale that you like, but mm. if you are ignoring your sadness or you're incredibly stressed at work, it, it's not going to help. And we do need that rest to to rejuvenate, to fire up the neurons ready for another day. And yeah, we need to eat food that is going to make us feel good as Mm. well as things that we like. Yeah, definitely. Um, So your book is out in paperback now and it's available in Don't Buy Her Flowers packages, which is really exciting. So um, it's arrived at the warehouse. So when this goes out, it's there. And you put together a selection of products that you would put with it. So there'll be a how to be sad package, but you've got well, you can, I'll talk you through it and you can, if there's anything you want to reference, but you've got Epsom salts, Willie's dark chocolate with al- roasted almonds, uh, rave coffee, which is really good, fresh coffee and multicolored socks and your so, book, obviously. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Socks, I think much underrated gift. <laughs> it's like a hug for your foot. Yeah. You put on a new sock and like the arch is like gently caressed by a bit of oh, <laughs> yeah. lovely soft cotton. Rather than- grotty ones with holes yeah, in a scratchy one that's hard um yeah. and 
and the idea like we should all be bringing more color into our lives especially now and in winter mm. and then I think the coffee I'm all about not every day is going to be a happy day but where there are going to be moments of joy and they are blissful and they are rare and we should hold on to them when we can and for me one non-negotiable it, it moment of pleasure every morning is having that first coffee of the day right. and I know it's it's going to be delicious and I know it's going to be good and whatever happens that day I will really have enjoyed that so I'm not great at meditating or any of that stuff but just sipping that first coffee of the day brings all of the feels and is just a real it starts the day on a high yeah and then I think uh, chocolate covered almonds I still have a massively sweet tooth and I try not to go in for any deprivation these days with you know, history of eating disorders but mm. I'm also aware that um the sugar crash is real so if I can get some protein in there that's all good and that's you know you're feeling good about your day there with yeah. the almonds and then what else did I have Epsom salts, Epsom salts yes so magnesium for aching bones because you know I'm in my 40s now no, sometimes coming, things ache. <laughs> um, carrying kids my goodness and then also it can really help with helping your mind relax as well so after a long day I'm a big fan of a, an Epsom salts bath and nice. normally it takes quite a long time to get all of the kid toys out of the bath first oh, but when do I do what? that it's worth it what age is it when you can stop having loads of plastic shit in the know. bath it's not it's enjoyable really is it because you think oh I'm gonna have a quick bath and yeah. then you've got to unload like take shots. Barbie out first yeah. <laughs> yeah it drives me nuts yes and then even then if you take them out they're perched on the edge and they'll inevitably one out and fall in yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that's nice yeah <laughs> oh good no thank you so I think it's a really important book even even just the one message about how we talk to our kids I think is a huge takeout let alone what we can do for ourselves but you know if we're messed up why don't we try and stop our kids from being this messed up <laughs> I think that's it for me as well it's it's about um you, we can think what we like about ourselves but if I want to pay forward if I want to sort of help other people to to be happier as well I have to kind of fix myself first so that's yeah, yeah. brilliant thank you so much Helen lovely to speak to you thank you for having me Thank you so much to Helen for being an excellent guest. I really enjoyed re-listening to that one, especially the bits around how you talk to kids as there's definitely been times with the older ones where they're a bit sad or they're struggling with something and it's a good reminder not to try and sweep over it and try and instantly make it feel better. We are getting into the Christmas zone over here at Don't Buy Her Flowers. Um, personally, I won't be doing my shopping until well into December, but if you are looking for gifts for the workplace, so for employees or clients, um, there's loads of options. We can create really bespoke packages, whether that's for 10 people or 1,000 people. We can, um, we've got new products like cocktail making kits and bauble making kits to add in for kids and a create your own food and drink hamper so you can make it really bespoke as well as our usual kind of TLC gifts with cashmere socks and pillow spray and all the things that someone needs at the end of the year when you can say thank you for working with me well done on a good year done and now please go and lie down for some of Christmas it feels like it's getting quite close suddenly <laughs> we need to you know start thinking about it but not too much um but yeah and if you would like to rate and review the podcast that would be amazing um we always say this but it really would be lovely to get some more feedback we've got five stars on itunes at the moment which is brilliant and yeah i hope you're all okay and we will be back very soon 